6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 1 through 4. Six down and then back in. The first one is assurance for the Christian. That's verses 1 and 2. The second section is the believer and the faith, verse 3. The third part is apostates described, verse 4. The next section is apostasy in Old Testament history, and that's verses 5 through 8. That'll be quite an interesting survey. The next section is apostasy in the supernatural realm, verses 9 and 10. That's the spooky stuff. Then we have verse 11, which is sort of the fulcrum for the whole structure here, an ancient trio of apostates. The next section, apostasy in the natural realm, verses 12 and 13. Apostasy in Old Testament prophecy, verses 14 through 16. Apostates described, verses 17 through 19. The believer and the faith, verses 20 through 23. And assurance for the Christian, verses 24 and 25. What fascinates me about that, there's lots of outlines. You can take any book and find, you know, seven authors will have seven different outlines. But this one kind of intrigues me because it shows that there's an underlying structure to this book that's uh, really quite provocative. Okay, so, so much for that. That gives us our 25-verse thing. So, at this point, we're ready to jump in the book. So usually I spend the first uh, 80 minutes or the first 90 minutes in ancient history and diagrams, old kings and stuff. Whenever we get into the verse, we have to, we get, this is pretty good. And just in hardly any time at all, we're in verse 1. The first word is the word Jude. Okay? Did you notice that? Why are you laughing, right? The name Jude in the Greek is Judas. Here's a book about apostasy whose name happens to be synonymous with Traitor. And it's interesting, you know, we call our kids Samuel, Paul, Peter, John, Matthew. How many have you named your kids Judas? That's a little. You know, Jude and Judas was a very common name in Christ's day. There's four or five of them in the New Testament alone. And yet, because of one by the name of Iscariot, the name has gotten sort of tainted. It's not a popular thing. You know, you name your dog, you name your kids, Peter, Paul, and so whatever. You can name your dog, Nero, Caesar. You don't even name your dog, Judas, I don't think. <laughs> the only pet that I know that was named is Judas. I happen to have the opportunity in my consulting days to uh, survey the largest meatpacking operation in South Dakota, John Morrell Meat Company. I was fascinated to discover there really is a goat when they get ready to, you know, they have these cattle to go up the ramp into the slaughterhouse. There's a goat that leads them up. The goat turns right, they turn left. It's a Judas goat. And you hear that expression. There really is, in, the, in today's modern culture, part of the operation of a slaughter operation, a meatpacking plant, is a Judas goat. 
But other than that, I don't think we use the name normally, except as an idiom for being a traitor. So it's interesting that the book of Jude, I'm not trying to disparage the particular writer, don't misunderstand me, but I think the Holy Spirit does in fact, more often than not, indulge in puns. Not, not for humor, but for a message. When we, in the Old Testament, read the, read the book of Joshua, the name Yehoshua is, a, is the Hebrew for Jesus. And when you realize that there's a name in the Old, a book of the Old Testament whose name, in effect, is a, a namesake of our Lord, it causes our attention, and all kinds of things surface from that as we look at that sort of thing, and so on. So the fact that here's a book about apostasy, who ha which happens to carry the name Judas, is uh, a pro provocative. Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, most of you as students of Scripture understand that what a doulos is in the Greek, a bond slave, a slave for life. Now, incidentally, we're going to discover shortly, well, I'll get ahead. He, we, we believe that Jude here was the brother of James, both of which were the brothers of the Lord. I'll come to that in a minute. We'll get into that. But it's interesting. He does not use that link as an identity. He's not that presumptuous. If we understand it right, the four brothers of Jesus Christ didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. This is, we don't believe this is the Jew that's listed in the apostles. Different Jude. Different James. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. James and Jude were brothers. They were linked to the family of Jesus Christ. Some feel they were actual brothers. Some feel they may have been stepbrothers from a former marriage. There's all kinds of, I don't want to get into that here because the language isn't that clear, but we do, he links himself obviously then thus to, uh, to James. It's interesting that Jude says, Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, and this book sits just before the book of Revelation. And to get what I'm after, turn the page and let's refresh our memories as to the first verse of the book of Revelation. First of all, let me reemphasize it's a singular word. It's amazing how many ministers I even hear on the radio speak of revelations, plural. It's not, it's a singular. It's not a collection of revelations. It's a singular revelation. The first sentence, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's it. The singular revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, unto whom? To Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation seems a little strange in its style. It's because it's the Father talking to the Son. But, which God gave unto him, for what purpose? To show unto his doulos, his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. So the Revelation is written to whom? To the Judes, to you and I, to the extent that we're in his shoes. Jude, the servant, the doulos, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about, is a very, very final climactic appendage to the Scripture to inform the servants. Okay. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Now, this is a great departure to go from here. We go into 17 hours of background on all the four different Jameses we find in the Gospels. So I'll spare you all that. The brother of James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, he remember that he shows up prominently when they have this dispute that uh, that gets resolved. And you can chase that down on your leisure. You know, he's also the author of the epistle of James, also in Scripture. And it, there are some interesting structural parallels between James and Jude. And he is recorded in Galatians chapter one, verse nineteen, as the Lord's brother. Now, I, don't, uh, I personally think he was the Lord's brother, but I should share with you candidly, there are some scholars who believe that the term 
is broader than a direct brother as you and I would use it. And so there's that, that it's, it's not tightly conclusive, but for lots of reasons, not the least of which uh, you might want to take a look at uh, either Matthew 13.55 or Mark 6.3. They're pretty much similar. Let's take Mark 6.3 because it does include one other interesting little thing. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, uh, verse 2 says, For where hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that giveth such mighty works as are wrought by his hand? This is the crowd sort of responding here. And verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judas and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. That was, you know, that, that, that was the response. Now, I won't get into Mark and the whole situation, but in, incidental to this passage, it lists four brothers and some sisters. And uh, some people, especially of Catholic background, have a real hang-up with that. Well, I'm not here to beat it to death, and there are some, uh, you know, uh, competent scholars who, and Jesus goes on, says, you know, is, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and among his own kindred. In any case, though, we believe that well, first of all, this James was the, J the head of the church in Jerusalem. And there was a brother by the name of Judas, or Jude. This Jude is the writer who identifies himself as the brother of James. And to the readership, who is James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, the Lord's brother? Okay, so that's why I don't think there's a big mystery. We don't need to beat it to death. Uh, we'll just keep moving on. And if you study John chapter 7, verse 5, you'll come to the conclusion that the brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. And so it was after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they seemed to grasp who he really was. And, uh, and certainly um, James and Jude, at least, became active for his gospel. James very distinguished, and Jude, obviously, the author of this epistle, and so on. So it's interesting that neither one of them were numbered among the twelve. That James, James the last, all that, those are different cast of characters, to the best of our understanding. Next, we're going to check our equipment before we plunge into the book. Let's finish verse 1. It says, uh, the way in the King James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Finishes verse 1, okay? There are three concepts here, and the order depends on your translation. They're called, beloved, and kept. Okay? Incidentally, there's a trinity there. There's a calling, there's a loving, and there's a keeping. Who calls you? The Father. Through whose love are you? For God so loved the world that he, etc., gave no son. So you, the love you associate with Jesus Christ, you can. And who preserves, keeps you? The Holy Spirit. So it's interesting, and you can look at that several different ways, but basically there is a trinity of ideas there. Let's first of all take this word called. I'm assuming all of you in this room, I'm going to op operate on the presumption that all of you are diligent students of the Word, and I'm assuming that the very fact that you're hearing my voice, whether it's on tape or here in the room, says that God is calling you. But Jesus says, I have chosen you, you have not chosen me. That's John 15, 6, uh, 16. In John 6, 65, to mention but a couple of the places that idea shows up. You don't choose him, he chooses you. Second Thessalonians, again, in chapter 2, the chapter we just looked at, we won't take the time now, but verses 13 and 14, points out that God hath from the beginning chosen you. When were you, you were chosen by God, you didn't choose him, he chose you. When did he choose you? There's so many places to deal with this. I'm going to pick my favorite one rather than all these others. I'll allude to those, but I'll pick the one that I'll enjoy the best, which is Romans 8. 
So hit pause here, and you'll discover five verbs in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter you should have tabbed. If your life is as hectic as mine, you refer to it frequently to see that it's still there. Um, we all know verse 28. If you don't, you should memorize it. It'll see you through a lot of difficulties. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. There's that concept of calling. But Paul goes on in verse 29 on to elaborate a structure. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Five steps. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. That happens to be the structure of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I missed one. Joseph. Abraham was, anyway, uh, foreknown and predestinated. Isaac, his seed was called. If he can justify Jacob, he can justify anybody. <laughs> and of course, in Joseph comes the glorification as a type of Christ. So Paul has in mind here a structure, if you will, uh, apparently of the book of Genesis as an aside. Now, if you're foreknown and predestinated and called, is he faithful and just to finish what he starts? You bet. So justification, Glorification are the steps that, that continue. So having said that, let's get back to notice what, what Jude is saying here. Is that, okay, you're, you're called. We've talked about that. Also, you're beloved. And I'm dealing here from the authorized rather than the King James, but the word is beloved. And, and who are the beloved? The church. You can find John 14, 23, John 16, 27, John 17, 20, and 23. Who are the beloved? Let's take a look. Well, let's just, let's, this is too important. Let's hold our finger here and turn to John 14 and understand who to whom Jude is writing and what we mean by the beloved. John 14, verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Turn over to John 16. A couple of pages. We'll just hit a couple of these to get the flavor of it. John 16, verse 27. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Interesting ideas that are linked there. God loves you, right? Because ye have loved me. See, it's, it's elliptical. It's reflexive. Okay, turn with me to John 17. This is the high, this is the high, the high ground. John 17. Intimate prayer between the Father, between the Son to the Father. He's praying for his disciples. It's awfully hard just to select a piece of this, but let's uh, pick over verse 20. Jesus is saying to the Father, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them who also who shall believe on me through their word. So Jesus here in John 17, this intimate prayer between Jesus and the Father. It's the most intimate prayer that you'll find between Jesus and the Father in the Scripture. John 17. And he's praying for you. Your name is in verse 20. And skipping on down here, uh, we're just keeping on verse 20, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. And I in them and thou in me, that they may be made 
perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That's a lot of love. The love that you and I share is the love that the Father has for the Son. By the time you're through with this, you get the sense that they're very, very um, inseparable. This whole chapter is worth your reading. If you're ever in a meditative mood and don't know where else to go, plunge into John 17 and read the prayer, this, this dialogue, if you will, between the Father and the Son. Or between the, you know, primarily, it's just Jesus' words to the Father, but it's, it's, it's clearly a reflexive, fabulous area. Beloved. We're going to see shortly that the letter of Jude is written not to the unbeliever, but to you and I. And the beloved. Okay, called beloved, the third verb or, or category or, or attribute here uh, is kept. And this is strange because this is the only salutation in any epistle in the New Testament that has this word in the salutation, kept. The word in the Greek implies watchful care, close attention. It's a present possession. It actually means continually kept. Okay? The same word is used in Acts 12 and, and, and 25 of Peter and Paul's imprisonment. The verb and the structures that they were kept. They're confined. They're, they're the same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 1 of our heavenly inheritance. I don't think our heavenly inheritance is very vulnerable. That's the term that's used here. Okay, we're kept. Now, to get the same word we're going to find out in verse 6 in this epistle is used of the fallen angels who are kept, who kept not their first estate. So whatever is binding them you know, they are kept, okay? And the same word is used in the book of Revelation about in Revelation to the church in Philadelphia. He will keep us from the hour of trial, right? That word keep or preserve and so forth. Now, we're also, by the way, now that's his side of it. He keeps us, right? Before we're through with this epistle, we're going to discover we have to keep ourselves. Verse 21, we're going to discover we have to keep ourselves in the love of God, whatever that means. We'll talk about that when we get to verse 21. We are to be kept blameless unto the coming of our Lord and Savior. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So those are all ideas that are embodied here in this word kept. So we're, we've, got, we've done really well so far. We've gotten through verse 1, okay? Okay, so we're called, loved, and kept. That's the category. Then he goes on to give his benediction or his salutation. He says, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now you students of the Pauline letters are probably surprised. We're so used to what? Grace and peace, right? This is mercy, right? It's interesting that this letter on apostasy speaks of mercy rather than grace. They're very close cousins. We want both. We desperately need both. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Most of you know. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve, right? Mercy is not getting that which you do. Mercy is not getting that which you do deserve. Grace is getting that which you don't deserve. So they're both very desirable. Mercy implies failure on the part of its object. You and I need God's mercy because of our failure. We welcome His grace because that gives us that to which we're not entitled. Unmerited favor is one glib definition. Mercy is not getting that which we do deserve. Now, why is it mercy rather than grace? Because it suits the message. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit, in the very subtleties of the styling of the letter, it anticipates the central message of the epistle. The epistle is written by a guy who changed his mind. 
we're going to discover in the next verse that he sat down to write something quite straightforward and was constrained, was pressured, was forced to write something totally different. Jude is taken over. But the subtleties are already showing up early of the message is coming. Mercy rather than grace. Now, here we could get into an easy digression about the law and uh, grace and between works and faith and so forth. Wherever we have the law, we have death. Numbers 15, verses 32 through 36 is an example. A guy collects some sticks on the Sabbath day and he's put to death. God commands that under Moses. You break the, he was teaching them that you break the law, the answer comes crisply. The law speaks of death. The law speaks of failure. James 2.10 and lots of other verses that we've talked about. Okay. Works trips leads to the same chambers of horrors. Galatians chapter 5 details the results of works. Verses 5, uh, 19 through 21. And again, in the interest of time, we won't digress with all of these things. God's grace is the antithesis of that. Rather than digress too much on that, let's take the second word. Mercy, we've talked about. Peace, we, know, we talk a lot about peace. How do we have peace? Romans 5, 1. We have peace with God through whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, exactly. There is no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 57 tells us. The whole ideal is to worry about nothing, pray about everything, and give thanks for anything. And that's Philippians 4, 6, crudely summarized. Worry about nothing, pray about everything, and give thanks for anything. Authority for that is Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Do you know what a worry is a sin? I worry a lot. I'm a big sinner. I got a lot of anxiety. It's all unbelief. My wife and I pray a lot about that. I'm worrying less and less because he's just taking over more and more, and I wish I'd learned that a long time ago. They don't pay me by the hour. They pay me by the altar. And the... And the but he sees us through. And one, what's, what's interesting, he sees us through never early, always at the last minute, because he's got to get us to the point where we finally give up and realize it's all in his hands. And when we do that, he comes through and fixes things. And you'd wonder, why don't we ever learn and just stop worrying? And, and we pray about everything. And then whatever happens, we give thanks and so forth. So that's what it's all about. Philippians 4, 6. Okay. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now love shows up in the first three verses of this epistle. So I assume it's important. It's our badge of identity. John 13 tells us that that's how men are to recognize us as Christians, that we love one another. It's also interesting that it's the lack of love that goes from Philadelphia to Laodicea in the seven churches. Those of you that are students of the seven letters, seven churches, and understand that that's a chronology of church history, understand that Philadelphia, brotherly love, gives rise to, what's the next one? Anyway, it's when Laodicea comes down, we've got problems. Okay. Something else that's worth studying is Ephesians of the seven letters, seven churches. The, the church at Ephesus was commended that they were very rigorous and straightforward on their doctrine. However, where do they lose? Their first love. Very good. Right. And we study the, the, what happened to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul, uh, John both, both warned them what was coming. They obviously didn't hear because their lampstand was removed. How many of you have visited the church at Ephesus? Um, okay. Incidentally, these elements here also show up in verses 20 and 21. So the structure of the epistle will be preserved, but we'll take that on when we get there. But that's interesting. Okay, so we got mercy, peace, and love. Mercy is upward. P 
peace is inward and love is outward. So there's something very structurally fundamental going on here. In the interest of getting at least another verse or two, we'll keep moving. We could spend more time on this, but with, a, with an experienced, sophisticated group like yourselves, I'm covering uh, very, very familiar ground, so we'll move on. We get to verse 3 and we discover a strange thing. The first question is, is to whom is the epistle written? It's very important when you read these epistles to try to understand who is the audience and why was it written, that sort of thing. This, this is being written to beloved believers. This is not written to unbelievers. This is not an evangelical piece. This epistle will have very little meaning to you unless you're born again and, and abide in Jesus Christ. If you're not in that position, this epistle is going to be strange and boring and unrelated and not mean much. Have very little meaning to those who are not born into the family of God. First Corinthians two fourteen. The natural man receiveth not the things right and so forth. Okay, and obviously the the uh, the word here is aga comes from the verb agapeo, which means to be totally given over to. Now the the structure is a little hard to unravel. He says the Jude says when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you, and he goes on. What the language in the English doesn't get across is what he's really trying to say here. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, that's what he started to do. What he's really saying is, I sat down with all straightforwardness to write you a letter about our common salvation. In other words, gee, we're believers, and I was about to write you... A, I infer that it's probably a letter like Paul used to write. He'd be away on a trip and he'd write his churches to encourage them and pray for them and, you know, just write about our comments, sometimes include some theological tidbits, but basically one of just encouragement. When I was going to, I see a Jew saying, I, uh, Beloved, when I, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, and it was that salvation that's common to you and I. That's what he started to do. It was needful for me. That language in the English doesn't carry the intensity of the Greek. There was a divine compulsion. Something changed Jude's mind as he started to write, and he was forced to write what he wrote. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.